So first, as I said I would, uh, at some point, I don't know if you remember, I mentioned that I would uh, tell you one of the poems Master Cousin wrote after one of his awakening. Then, so, so that's what generally happens. When you have a breakthrough, then you present the poem to your um, teacher, and then the, poet, the teacher in turn writes another poem. So here it is. So that's what Master Cousin presents to his teacher. The diverse forms in the universe are fundamentally empty. So what meaning would there be in pointing at space? A withered tree standing on a rock feels neither hot, hot or cold. In spring, flowers bloom. In autumn, fruits are born. I repeat it, or it's okay one time. It's enough. I repeat it. So, I'm, I'm not going to explain it. <laughs> the diverse forms in the universe are fundamentally empty. So what meaning would there be in pointing at space? A withered tree standing on a rock feels neither hot nor cold. In spring, flowers bloom. In autumn, fruits are born. Then his teachers write back, I planted the stump of a plum tree. Due to the old wind, flowers have already blossomed. Without fail, you will behold the bearing of fruit. Therefore, bring me the pit of the plum. So, and so what I wanted uh, to talk about uh, this evening is grasping and creative engagement. Because to me, that's what we're doing when we, in a way, sit in meditation we're actually trying to dissolve the grasping so that instead there can be a creative engagement with whatever we encounter inside or outside of ourselves. But first, I'll mention just a few quotes showing a little what I mean. The first one is from Winning, the sixth patriarch. And he says, no mind... Because in the Zen tradition, there is a lot of talk about no mind. No mind, no thought. And then you often have this idea, you must sit and kind of have this kind of empty brain or empty spot somewhere. But that's what he says. No mind is to see and to know all things with a mind free from attachment. So no mind is not an empty mind because no mind is actually to see and to know all things. So no mind actually is this wide open awareness. And the specificity is that it's a mind free from attachment. So no mind doesn't mean that it's empty. It's more the quality of its relationship to what it's encountered and what is within it. When he knows this no mind pervades everywhere, yet it sticks nowhere. So again, this idea that if we develop this creative awareness, then actually there really, really this feeling of spaciousness, of wide openness, and of this not sticking anywhere not fixing anywhere, not clinging to anything. In another quote, he says, to take an attitude of neither indifference nor attachment to all things. Because often the idea, we feel, oh, well, if I must not be attached, then I must be indifferent. Often there is this idea 
But winning is very clear, the six patriarchs. This no mind is kind of cultivating an attitude where there is no attachment, but there is no indifference either. Again, it's a different way to engage with ourselves, with the world. And so in, often there is this um, idea about awakening that we're kind of going to become a little like a Christmas tree. Suddenly, ping, you know, and we were all lit. But what is interesting when you read a lot of the stories, Zen stories, like one, one story is about this monk who really wants to meditate hard and he wants to awaken and so he practices really hard. And he tries for many, many, many years. And he sits and he concentrates and he inquires and nothing happens. So after, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, he decides to give up and he goes to live in a little hermitage and just to have a more ordinary life, a little less sitting, but still, you know, continuing with the awareness and fear. And how is kind of working in the field to just kind of uh, dig the earth to kind of later plant some seeds? He hit a pebble, which then flies and ricochet on the bamboo. And he heard, just hear the sound. And then he's awakened. And then what is interesting is what he says. Ah, it was there all the time. <laughs> so actually, what he is discovering is not something special, something extraordinary. He's the same person in the same environment, but is not relating, it, relating to it in the same way. So that's what goes. What goes in a way is a grasping, is a holding, is a fixing. And so in a way, it's to see that it's kind of like we, I would say we cultivate meditation so that we have more choice in what I call sticking or not sticking. Because we have a tendency to stick. And I would say meditation, in a way, makes us less gooey, makes us less sticky. So that when we encounter things, there can be more spaciousness. So first, for those who have not seen it, there are a few of those. So though the one, it's always a good reminder. This is my little party trick. So this is precious. Either it's gold or it's diamond or it's the greatest truth in the universe. But it is mine. I have got it. It's mine. It's precious. So I hold on to it like that. So by doing this, two things happen. The first thing is that I get a cramp in the arm. So whenever there is grasping, there is tension. If you feel tension, often look, there will be some grasping of some kind. But there is something more problematic when I do this. The problem is that I cannot use my hand. I am stuck to what I am grasping at. And this is in a way what is problematic with grasping is that it limits us to what we are holding on to. So what is the solution? The first solution could be to cut the hand. <laughs> but that, I would say, is a little drastic. But that's some ascetic practice, take this way. Another solution is to get rid of the object. No object, no grasping. But... The object is not saying, come, come, come. You really want to grasp at me, don't you? I mean, we have the feeling if you go on the high street, if you go to a big shopping center, you have the feeling that everything is calling out to, to you. Oh, you really, you know, I am beautiful. You want me, don't you? But actually, no. The things came upon condition. It's not doing anything. So getting rid of the object, I would not say is a solution. 
And so personally, I would say, what we do in meditation is what I would recommend as a solution, is that slowly, 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 we de-grasp, we unclasp, and then there is space. And then we can move, we can use a thing, but there is freedom. And to me, this is what we do in meditation. We're trying to, we actually, the, the, doing the meditation itself, the concentration, the inquiry, develop this dissolving of the grasping, of the holding. And first to look at the grasping process. What happens when we grasp? I would say the, the thing which go together with grasping is identifying. The two things go together. When you grasp, you identify. When you identify, you grasp. It's kind of immediate. They're together. I, me, mine. Then as soon as you do this, this kind of grasping identification, then you in a way solidify around what you grasp. Then you limit yourself to it. And then the worst thing is that then you magnify it. This is a problem with grasping. It's not only does it limit us, it's also magnify what we grasp at. And then, generally, we feel overwhelmed. So anyway, to, to, to kind of see the process. And so, to see that when we grasp, I would say generally, we can notice there is grasping, because often we do two things when we grasp. One is that we proliferate. We don't stay with what is really going on here and now, we generally proliferate. Let me give you an example. Here we have this beautiful flower. Isn't it beautiful? Pink and white, beautiful smell, wonderful flower. So we look at it. We see it as we hear, and we think, mm, nice flower. Mm, I like it. Ah, it would be nice in my garden. Where, where could I get it? I could get it in this garden center. Then where would I put it in the garden? Maybe that corner. Yeah, that corner would be okay. Yeah, then I have to get the compost. And, you know, I have to, yeah, Stephen has to dig the hole. <laughs> so, you see what happened. As long as I am with the flower, staying there, the colors, the smell, the shape, even the appreciation is okay. But when I go, hmm, I would like to have it. How can I get it? And then, whew, I, and then I am not with the beauty of the flower anymore. I am somewhere else. So to notice when we grasp, there is a very strong tendency to proliferation, to abstraction. And then we re not really with the thing that is, we started with, actually. The other thing we do, which is also dangerous, <coughs> is exaggeration. Is that we, when we grasp and we identify, we generally exaggerate. We have a problem. We have always had this problem. We will always have this problem. And so we kind of feel this is too much. This is terrible. And so to, to notice, we easily, in grasping, there is this exaggeration. We then, in a way, it's very difficult. I mean, how can you solve always? I mean, if it's always, I can't, you, often you feel overwhelmed, hopeless. It's always like this. You kind of vanquish before you even start. Instead of if you creatively engage with creative awareness, then you can have a creative response to what is going on now, not what you have exaggerated. Then there is also what we have to see is that often when we talk about attachment, there is this idea of what I would call positive grasping. We grasp because we like. But I think it's very important to see 
that when we reject something, we do the same thing. We do, in a way, grasping in reverse. But in the same way, we proliferate negatively and we exaggerate negatively. So in a way, to, to, to see the two movements, negative, we exaggerate, it's awful, it's terrible. I had an interesting experience many years ago. I was doing a, a retreat in a, when I was living in community. I was summer retreat, and I was also doing uh, my job. My, I was house cleaner at the time, and that's the way I earned money. So mid, midway through the retreat, I have to do my three hours of cleaning, so I go to do it. I go to the bathroom. I open the toilet bowl with great apprehension because generally I was always afraid that there'll be this. Ooh, I can't deal with it, you know. There is something floating. <laughs> so generally it was... And this day, I just go into the bathroom, open the toilet bowl, and there is a big one. <laughs> big brown one. And I think, this is a form. <laughs> this has come upon condition. Doesn't need to be there, so I still flushed it. <laughs> but to me, what was interesting in the experience is that there was no proliferation. It's always like this. And there was no exaggeration. <gasps> it's awful, I can't deal with it. It was just, ah, it's there. It's something that I conditioned, and it's going to pass away too. And there was nothing of this aggravation. It was very interesting to have that experience, to see the, the difference between just being with the thing as it was, as it happens to be, and not with the abstraction, the exaggeration I would normally create. But it's the same with something positive. We generally, something we like, something we want, something we expect. And then you exaggerate. You kind of think, you know, this, this is it. This is fantastic. It's going to be the greatest thing in the universe. And then you, you, you I'm going to get it. You know, and there is this huge thing around it. And that's what happened with my first book, uh, which is this book which has just been reprinted recently, The Way of Korean Zen, my first book, you know, translation of Master Cousin's teaching, you know, and yeah, 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 it's going to arrive any day in the post. So every morning before breakfast, I was excited. It's going to come, it's going to come. And finally the day arrived. The package arrived, I opened the package, I look at the cover, I look at the back. It lasted about three minutes. And this was it. It was a book. I mean, it was a nice cover, but it was not going to change my life. I still had to eat breakfast. I still had to do my job. I still had to do whatever. And, to, and what was interesting was to see how much I had added onto that experience. And so in a way, to see with grasping, there is that proliferation, that exaggeration, negative or positive. So what I want to do now is to look at a few things that we have a tendency to grasp at and to look at what does it mean to grasp, what does it mean to creatively engage. So the first thing, the self. And... I know in Buddhism, often it's talked about there is no self. But there is no self doesn't mean there is nobody. It just means that there is no separate, inherent self. So what it means is that there is a functioning self, and my functioning self is different from your functioning self because different condition made it. And so we're very much looking at the self as a process as the flow of conditions. And then what happened, this flow of condition, which is in a way inner condition, whole body, 
heart and mind, meeting outer conditions. That was, in a way, our functioning self. But often what we do with this self is that we grasp at one of the conditions that forms it. And so we have this being, mind, body, heart, relatively complex, relatively multi-perspectival. But a lot of the time what we do is we grasp at just one of the conditions that forms it. And so we reduce this multi-perspectival condition of everything. It becomes just one thing. And then we reduce ourselves to that one thing. And then there is no place for the creative potential to be able to respond in a creative way. So, for example, thought. Thought, we, you see, that's why I think meditation is useful in terms, not of having no thought, but in terms of coming into contact consciously with our thought. What is it I think? And how do I grasp, exaggerate, proliferate with the thought I come into contact with? Because one second we don't have a thought, and next we have a thought. And then generally we grasp at it, we identify, we solidify around it, and then we blow it up. An example. We're waiting. Waiting for somebody... Nine o'clock, he or she is not here. Hmm. Ten past nine, he or she does not love me. Nine twenty, nobody loves me. Nine thirty, I hate the world. <laughs> and very likely the person might have had a punctured tire or missed a train or whatever. But it, it, it's interesting. You know, we have a thought, and then, and we just kind of get caught in it. Or another one that we often have, I am hopeless. This is hopeless. Everything is hopeless. It will always be hopeless. I mean, the more you go, the more you kind of, kind of feel really like kind of like stuck. Instead of saying, yes, it can be difficult condition. How can I creatively engage with the condition now? Not in the past, not in the future, but now. This is the only place we can creatively engage. And the grasping, you know, it will stop us from creatively engaging. Or oh, a feeling. To me, that's one of the things that I was really uh, struck with Master Kuzan. So he was a great teacher and, you know, he had lots of disciples and kind of relatively well-known in Korea. And me translating, being around for some time, there was two times where it was guaranteed that he would cry, and cry in public. You know, this 60-year-old man, etc., etc., he would cry in public. But the way he cried was very interesting. The first one was when he, he had to do a death ceremony for somebody he knew. So the thing would happen, the chanting and everything, then he gave a talk generally. And what was interesting is that he would say, there is no life, there is no death, da-da-da-da. And then he would cry for about two minutes. So, handkerchief, there is no life, there is no death. And to me what was impressive is that he was sad because somebody died, but he was not grasping at it. He just came, he expressed it, and then he moved on. The other time he would cry is when he would talk to lay people and he would talk about the gratitude, the different gratitude one has toward one's parents. And I had noticed every time he would cry at a certain point. So finally I asked him, and he said, oh, but you know, this is a gratitude toward one's mother when you leave home and she's crying on the doorstep. And then he would cry for about 30 seconds, thinking of his mother crying on the doorstep, and then he move on to the next gratitude and so forth. And again, the same thing. He would cry, really do it, the real thing, and then next minute, it, it, it was not there anymore. 
So then he could, in a way, creatively engage with a feeling of sadness, express it, but did not hold on to it, did not exaggerate it, did not proliferate with it, and then it was gone. And in a way, for us too, we can look, for example, at fear. Fear is interesting, because sometimes we have a feeling of fear, of anxiety. And if you look, a lot of the time is actually a combination of a feeling and a thought. So that you have the feeling, which you grasp at, and then you have this thought, which goes into I am anxious, there must be a good reason to be anxious, and then generally you go into fear about the future. Most of the time when we're anxious, it's not. I mean, of course, if somebody is pointing a gun at you, you're afraid, fair enough. And then you have to kind of do something about it. But most of the time, when we're afraid, look, generally it's in the future. It's not here and now. And so in a way to see what is going on now. Creative engagement is what is going on now. And right now, nothing is dangerous. Right now, nothing is happening. Nothing is doing anything bad to me. I'm not doing anything bad either. So you know, we're trying to look at how there is kind of the feeling which gets caught with the thought. Then you have the proliferation, then the exaggeration, and then you have the feeling, oh, and instead trying to stay more at the beginning. To me, the meditation helps us to stay more at the beginning of the contact so that instead of being caught, we actually can more creatively engage. And it's the same with, um, in a way, sensation. Though, one little point about feelings. It's interesting. I read a book recently, and it was a biologist. And she was saying that after various experiences and doing this and that, her practice, when she has strong feeling because of various circumstances, is to be aware of the 90 seconds, seemingly, I don't know if it's true or not, that's not normal, your 90 seconds of physiological kind of <gasps> in the body. And she said she stayed, you know, she counted 90 seconds, and then she moves on. <laughs> And I find it, this is an interesting, creatively engaged way to deal with kind of feeling, which are a little disturbing. That's your method. I don't know if it's true or not, but I thought it was an interesting point. But sensation, we can also look at sensation. This is part of our condition of ourselves. We have a sensation. Often it's a pain. And what do we do? Do we grasp at it, proliferate with it, exaggerate it? Or do we creatively engage with it? Since I've been here, I have a tooth problem. I have a tooth which is dying. This is life. I did not know tooth died. Now I know. And just before coming here, I went to the dentist. And he did this thing. I had no idea what it really did. And he said, you come back in 10 days. I am going on holiday. And I'm on retreat. So he does his thing, and it seems to be okay, and then I come here. And then the first day here, I sit, and suddenly, I'm sitting there. And I can see, I have the choice. I can grasp and proliferate. If I'm in pain like this all the time, I won't be able to speak, I won't be able to sit there, and then... You know, this is Easter Friday, you know, in England, everything shuts at Easter, you know. I mean, I could, I mean, I could have, but I decided this is no point in doing that. And really what is happening? What was happening was sharp pain, but what was weird about the sharp pain is that it was finished before I became aware of it. So it was kind of like, it's gone. It's gone. And so I thought, well, it's, it's, it's not pleasant, but it doesn't last very long. So what can I do about this? And I decided to creatively engage, which was to look, what is it that makes it worse? Because I could see, what is it that 
could possibly make it better. And I realized it, I had to be careful how I brush my teeth, what I eat, etc., etc. And today I barely had any pay. Little, kind of little, but not much. And so who knows, I might not have to go to the dentist. But if I had not creatively engaged, I would not have been doing much meditation. I would have thought a lot about the dentist and, you know, etc., etc., a lot. When I did not do any of this, I just sat there and appreciated that the eat was not happening right now. Next second, it's still not happening. I'm okay. So in a way, it's not saying there is no pain. Yes, there is a pain. There is also the possibility of pain. But if it has not happened, I don't need to make more of what it is. Then another thing that we kind of do and we grasp at, and it's kind of interesting, is of, in terms of the self, is a feeling we have of being special. We are special. We feel we are special. Of course, our mother generally feels also that we are special, but apart from her. And what is interesting is that we have this feeling, often is that we are the center of the universe. And how often do you think, I would never do this? Meaning, you know, why do they do this? I would not do it. Meaning, everybody is supposed to do everything like me. Or we think, they're doing this because of me. Most of the time, they're doing this because of them. But it's interesting, this feeling of, I am special. And possibly from an early age, I wanted to be special. That's no doubt about that. I can remember once working in England in a post office and suddenly a young guy saying in exasperation, and I was about 19, oh, you always want to be special. Then I went to Korea and I became a nun in Korea. The only French nun in Korea, one among 60 million. The only French nun in Korea, one among 60 million French people. So I was one among 120 million people. I mean, try to make more special than that. <laughs> and I think it was as apex of my specialness. <laughs> then I stopped being a nun. And that was very interesting. My, the first time where I walked around, ordinary clothes, ordinary hair, and I felt something is weird. And I looked. And I realized nobody was looking at me like I was special. I was just like any of them. And that's when, in a way, I realized, which is often something you hear a lot in the Zen tradition, is that actually awakening is not going to make you even more special. But actually awakening is going to help you to be more ordinary. And to me, this is, in a way, since I've stopped being a nun, I'm kind of enjoying becoming more and more ordinary and being, in a way, less and less special and grasping at that feeling. Then I wanted to look a little at grasping or not at people because I feel it's, it's a little dangerous. Again, I mentioned that, to not think that because we are in silence, because we're sitting, and this seems to be kind of a slightly self-centered activity that we're just doing this for ourselves. And that, in a way, we don't need other people and that the, the aim is to kind of, you know, be beyond it all. To me, on the contrary, I think meditation is going to help us to actually develop what I would call creative, wise relationship. Creative, wise love. So personally, I don't find it very useful to talk about detachment. Because it's, again, it looks like indifference. It looks like not being involved. But to me, actually, the meditation is, will allow us not to grasp. So then we can really creatively relate to the other person. That it be a child, that it be a partner, that it be family, that it be a friend, that it be a neighbor. That actually, 
the, the degrasping process will actually help us to be more wise, to be more compassionate, to be more loving without this kind of holding, this grasping. Because when we're in a relationship, what is interesting to look is what do we grasp? When we love somebody, that it be a child, a partner, whoever, what is it we grasp? One thing we can do is grasp at the person, really physically grasp at the person. So in a way, we stick to them. We kind of try to always be with them. But when we do this, actually we limit ourselves and we limit the other persons too. Because then it stops us from relating to others as well. And so often we have to be careful of thinking that loving somebody is like kind of a union. Personally, I think loving somebody is like two parallel lines. There is what you cultivate together, which can grow, but also what you cultivate outside of the parallel line with other people in different ways. There are many different ways to relate, to love people. And it's something that is not limited to a certain quantity, to a certain person, but that can just grow and grow and grow. Another thing we might grasp is a feeling. When we love someone, often we grasp at the feeling the person provokes in us. And then the question is, when the feeling is not there, where you don't seem to feel it in that, wow, I love you, what happened? And this often happens with children. I mean, I don't have children, but I have lots of niece and nieces, and I can see them in action with their parents. And what I found interesting is when a five-year-old says to his or her mother, I hate you. And generally, oh, the mother, ah, he doesn't love me anymore. But I mean, generally, it doesn't mean the child doesn't love you anymore. It just means the child wants his way or her way. That's generally the expression of that. But it's interesting how generally you grasp, ah, they mean it. In a way, an adult would say it. And it's interesting to kind of, you suddenly, you kind of, you're afraid the feeling is not there. And so, you know, we're looking, we're grasping at the feeling. Or another thing we do, we might grasp at the feeling of self-worth, the fact that somebody else loves us, gives us. Because often we think not much of ourselves. And if somebody loves us, we think maybe there's something wrong with them, but still the fact that they like us <laughs> means I'm not so bad after all. And then, if they're not there, where is the worth? So you need to see, what is it? What is it I grasp? The person? The feeling? The worth? And how can I creatively engage? To me, the creative wise love is to see, yes, of course there is feeling, but more than that, I would say there is care between the two people, there is appreciation, but even more than that, there is acceptance. That when you love somebody, you really accept them totally. And that actually is kind of the gift of love. And so in a way, we can cultivate the condition, I feel, to develop love, to develop create, creative, wise love. But also what is interesting, what can help us also there, is what I would call cultivating self-love. Because often we don't love ourselves. But if we did love ourselves creatively and wisely, we would be with ourselves all the time. So then first we would have the feeling all the time, we would have the person all the time, and we would have the self-worth all the time. I mean, this is not a good idea? Little creative wise love? And then it would be even easier to love others. And in a way from the acceptance, there is also the trust. And then if you really build, to me that's part of love, that it be a child, a partner, whoever, then, if you really love somebody, you really accept them, then you can talk about what is difficult. Because otherwise it's very difficult because you're very defensive. 
But if you feel you really accept it, and you can see what is it that is difficult. And then, in terms of the meditation, it's very interesting. You love somebody, you have this fantastic feeling, ooh, I love you. You love me, ooh, this is lovely. And then, for whatever reason, you decide, for example, to live together. And then, it's not so easy. And you think, what's the matter? The feeling are there because we're grasping at our patterns. This is what happens when you have problem with somebody you love. The problem is not with the love, with the feeling. The problem is between the individual pattern. And because you love each other, you think, well, if he really loves me, he would change. And he would think my patterns are better than his. But he thinks the same. And what we have to see is that these patterns are actually means of survival. So often, people develop patterns of survival because of certain conditions. And then you think they do it on purpose, just to annoy me. Well, actually, that's just their way to react to difficult situations. So if you grasp, you won't be able to see that. But if you creatively engage in what is really happening here, then you can have like a more creative response. Stephen and I, we travel a lot. And in airport traveling, I get a little... He gets a little... So we're not at our best sometimes. And over time, I noticed when it was really, really, really difficult when we traveled... I would go faster, he would go slower. And I thought, he does it on purpose. He does it on purpose to annoy me. Until I realized it was just his survival pattern. And my survival pattern. And so now, we just joke. We have a problem, and I can see myself doing this, I can see myself doing that, and then we can now come in the middle. It goes a little faster, I go a little slower, and then off we go. You know, we're trying to see, trying to, to bring the creative awareness to the relationship. Then there is things. Things. We can easily grasp at things. And what is important to see in terms of grasping and creative engagement with things is to see the Buddha said we, have, we need four things. Even the monks need four things. Food, shelter, clothes, and medicine. So the non-grasping doesn't mean that you cannot have anything. But it says, you know, what is it you need and what is it you want? And that's not easy to see. That I think really is kind of something throughout our life. The meditation can help us to look at that. But it's not necessarily easy. But often what we do is... It's interesting, we grasp at the idea in advance of the pleasure that thing is going to give us once we have it. So actually, we enjoy more the time where we dream of getting it. Oh, won't it be good to have this? You know, and I'll get it in two weeks. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Once I, I invited my niece and my sister to London for a weekend to, so that my niece would kind of uh, uh, be fond of the English and English speaking. So, and for two months before the travel, they really enjoyed it in France, thinking, oh, yes, we're going to London. Isn't it going to be great? And, da, da, da. and then the weekend happened, and it was actually a letdown. I mean, it was okay, but we had pain in the feet because we walked everywhere, and then, you know, it was da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And to me, it was so interesting, this kind of how often when we grasp at things, we're actually grasping at the, the pleasure that we anticipate. And by the time we get the thing, it doesn't generally give us that pleasure. So in a way, to look, how do I kind of... Um, engage with things. And I think one of the key is to see that often, they're, especially with material things, that they're impermanent, that they're not going to last. We're just going to use them for a little while. 
So how can we use it carefully? How can we use it wisely? And then the last thing I wanted to just quickly talk about was actually grasping at traditions. Because I think this is something we do. Grasping at tradition. Grasping at the meditation. Grasping at what is this? We can even do that. And so in a way to, to be careful. To see that there are many different traditions. Even in the Zen tradition, you have many different Zen schools. You have also many different ways to do things. And at the moment, I have been asked to edit uh, an English translation of a Korean book where the Korean monks explain what is Korean questioning meditation. And they keep saying, we are the best, we are the best. And I'm keeping kind of, kind of cutting it down. You don't need to say you are the best. You know, show that you are the best. You don't need to say it. But I think it's very important to understand why do tradition generally say, I am the best? You know, Tibetan Buddhism, I am the best. Zen Buddhism, I am the best. Theravada Buddhism, I am the purest or whatever. I am the shortest. I am the more complete. I mean, generally you have kind of a little adjective to it. You know, I am the fastest, the more complete, the purest. You kind of have something better than the other. If you look at sacred texts, generally half of them, two-thirds are really good. Most sacred texts, they're really good. And then one-third is about, I am better than you. Because then more people will do it, because it's so good, more people have to do it. So you have to, to, to be a little careful with that. And to see that all these traditions, they came out of creativity. It's just somebody tried something and said, oh, this is a good idea. So they did more of it. And then they told somebody else about it. We, who made more of it? And then it developed. And then each developed in different ways. And actually, sitting here, you are doing the same. I, we are making suggestions. You are applying them yourself then you have your own creative response to it, your own experience, your own understanding. So in a way to see that creative, uh, tradition are not sacred. They're just things that have been created over time. And for the person who practices in one tradition, of course it's the best, because that's the one they know. Master Kuzan was totally convinced the what is this, the wadu was the best method ever. But why? Because that's the only one he knew. He did it, it worked for him, so, and this is, I think, the little, it worked for me, it's a good method, it's the right method, it's the only method, everybody should do it. So in a way, to see, and personally, I mean, I agree, the question is a good method. But it is not the only method. Because my experience teaching it to people over time is that generally I find there is three types of people with the question. First type, this is fantastic. I love this question. I've been waiting for this question all my life. Good. <laughs> Second person, what is this? What is that? And why do I have to ask this stupid question? I would say, don't do it. You don't have to do it. It's not sacred. It's just one method. If you take to it, you do it. If not, breath, listening, meta meditation, there are many good methods. The third type, that is interesting. It's people do the what is this, and then it makes them a little anxious, actually. And then generally I would say, do just a little of it. Don't do too much of it. Maybe often do it in combination with the breath. So again, to me, no method can be applicable to 100% of people. I would say most methods will fit 60%. Then what about the last 40%? We forget about them? I don't think so. I think we find other ways. which can Because the important point is not the tradition. It's not the method. 
The important point is that we cultivate concentration and inquiry together so that we develop creative awareness so that over time the grasping is dissolved and then there is more creative engagement. There is more creative response. That's what I wanted to say. Are there any questions or comments? Yes? With non-attachment. Yeah. Okay. You see, this is why I don't use the word non-attachment. Because I think in English it has a bad connotation. It kind of because non-attachment generally implies not caring. I don't care. This is that's why personally I prefer to talk about grasping, which generally reduces us. So it's quite painful. And I would say its opposite is creative engagement. To me, in a way, what we're doing here is removing the obstacle to our wisdom and compassion. Because all of us have the ability to be intelligent, to be wise. This is not something that the meditation is going to implant in us. We have this ability, all of us, to have wisdom. All of us has the ability to have compassion, to respond to the suffering of others. But a lot of the time, the negative habits, the grasping, actually stops us from actually really developing and expressing and manifesting the wisdom and compassion. So personally, I would say, when I talk of creative engagement, what will motivate me is wisdom and compassion. That will be the motivation. I can ask you the reverse question. What is the motivation when there is grasping? Generally self. Me, me, I want it. Or I don't want it. That's often the motivation when there is grasping. There is this me, which often is quite fixed, quite solid. But if there is not this grasping. We're not just like, I don't care. No. In a way, and that's what I'll talk about tomorrow in the instruction. But to me, what is interesting, when we do meditation retreat, often, at one point, a lot of people have a certain experience. It's what I would call an opening of the heart. You sit in meditation... And suddenly you have this feeling, and the only way I can describe it is that you feel you have no trouble with nobody. There is not one person you would not care for. And you feel this warmth and this, wow. And, and so to me, that's what comes from the non-grasping. It's not empty space, but from the non-grasping comes this, this care, this appreciation, this love but accompanied with wisdom for myself, for others. And then generally a movement, a creative response to do something, either for myself or for others. But that I will talk more about in the, the, the last day. Yes? Well, to me, actually, it's... I'll talk a little more about this tomorrow morning in the instruction, but to me, the meditation, this is one thing I became very struck by as I, the more I meditated. <coughs> that the, I feel that the creative awareness that we develop through the meditation has two immediate qualities. The first one is of acceptance. Non-judgmental acceptance. So that actually through the meditative process, we start to know more about ourselves, but in a non-judging way, but in a clear way. And we see, hmm, I have this good quality. 
if you become more aware of your good quality, you can cultivate more of it and develop more of that. If you become more aware of your negative quality, hmm, there is this negative quality. It is not always there. It comes upon conditions. So what are the conditions? How can I work with the conditions? What are the limits within these things? How can I creatively engage with it? And so over time, I would say it's kind of like a self-exploration, which actually, as the Buddha said, leads to more self-confidence. I would say self-appreciation of what is good, what is bad. And through that, there is this, oh yeah, I am not such a bad person. I am not the most fantastic person either. Because you see, this is a problem with special Either I am specially bad, and then I can do anything, or I am specially good, and then I don't see the bad thing I do, so I can do anything also. Well, actually, we are relatively ordinary. Good and bad mixed together. And if we know more about it, then I think we can appreciate ourselves more. And also we can deal with what is difficult in a more creative way. And through that, I think it becomes easier to have the, yeah, to love, I would say, this human being. Because often what we don't like about ourselves is an idea. We have all kinds of ideas, stories about ourselves. But trying to find, to really feel the human being who is alive, who is breathing, who has the potential. And so in a way, give yourself a chance. I would say the meditation helps us to do that. Yes. I am sorry, I can't hear you. So I don't know if you can speak a little more loudly or I come near to you and then I can hear you better. No, no, this, I, again, I can talk briefly about it, but we, I'll talk more about it on the last evening and also on the last morning. So we'll talk more about it. But to me, one of the things about meditation, and just in the posture, just in the posture, just in the way we walk, we cultivate actually stability and openness. And it's kind of like, an, I would nearly say, an inner posture that we cultivate within ourselves over time. And that it is this inner stability and openness which then we can take into our daily life. And it is what will help us at times to be more loving and compassionate, at times to be more careful. Because we, the fact that we are creatively engaged does not mean that we are stupid. You know, we, are, we develop wisdom too. And we have our limits. And so personally, I think on the compassion spectrum, we have to see it's not ideal compassion. It's, there is a spectrum. You have from having only compassion for yourself, only compassion for others, and in the middle. And when you're very ill, you have to have just compassion for yourself. If somebody is really, really in dire strait, you just have compassion for them. And then most of the time we are in the middle, going a little up, a little down, according to the conditions. And then we have to see, some people it's easy to be compassionate to and to kind of you know, creatively engage with. And some people, mm, it is difficult. And then I think that's to me, that's where the creativity comes in. How can I, it's kind of, to me, it's exploration. How can I be with that person? Do I have to avoid them? Sometimes you have to. Do I have to try not to get into argument, like me and the German monk? Or is there a way to talk to them that they will listen to me? Once I had this, I was working with this fellow, 
And he was very friendly, very nice, wonderful friend, but he had a tendency to erupt. If you said the right, wrong thing, he would just... And one, one time I did it. I, I said something and he... And I had two choices. Either I said, you know, you always do this, you know, I don't have the time for this, you know, forget it, you know. Or, which I did was to, okay, I said the wrong thing. So then I, you know, I listened to what he said, to how that wrong thing got him, and then I talked to him and talked to him, and and then it took me half an hour, but I managed to creatively engage with it. So it kind of, again, depends, you know, do you have the time or not? Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. So it's kind of like, it's, there is not a kind of fixed answer. To me, it's an exploration. It's kind of, you know, kind of applying what we learn here and kind of trying to see, you know, when we make mistakes, when, oh, that worked, that was a good one. And then kind of, kind of working in that way. And I have to finish here so that you can walk a little. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.